this episode of China Unscripted. The Chinese Communist Party is tied to Canada's elite in ways you couldn't imagine. Military cooperation is just the tip of the iceberg for Canada's frozen deep state. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Also, the big news that came out recently was a plan, a secret plan for the Canadian and Chinese military to uh, have a little bit of more cooperation. To do uh, cold weather training exercises in Canada. Which is important because, of course, China, as we know, is a near Arctic state. Well, they also probably want that for their, you know, skirmishes with India on the border. That's that's very helpful. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, the U.S. was not too happy about the idea of Chinese troops in Canada. So they raised a stint and eventually that was canceled. But uh, there's a lot of disturbingly deep ties between Canada and China. So for more on that, joining us today is Cleo Pascal of Chatham House and Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Cleo, thanks for joining us again. It's a it's a pleasure. I can tell. Hey, hey, hey. that's how I know you're you're Canadian. Canada looks beautiful in the dead of December. Oh, I made I made a mistake. I'm not. We're not supposed to let the Americans know how nice it is up here in December. It, it's cold. It's terrible. Don't don't come up here. It, it's a, it's a winter wasteland. Was, was that all a lie? Is Canada actually a paradise? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm actually in what we call Canada South, which is Florida from November to March. Ah, I see. Well, I think that's a part of Canada I wouldn't mind go, going to right now. You know, the last time we had you on, we 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 talked about China and India. Now we want to talk about China and Canada. We had a really interesting conversation on China Uncensored about the sort of uh, revelation that China and Canada were going to have military drills together. So everyone listening to the podcast should check that out. But you brought up some very interesting things about the history of uh, how Canada and China, particularly the Chinese Communist Party, started to interact. So why don't you tell us that story? It's fascinating. Yeah, sure. So we have Canada and China have a very long uh, co-history. Um, uh, as as with the U.S., um, Chinese men mostly came over to Canada in um, sort of around the uh, 1870s, 80s. Uh, some came through the gold rush. Most of them came for the railways to work, to help build the railways. And why we had to build the railways is an, is an interesting topic. It has to go has a lot to do with defending ourselves from the U.S. We can get back to that later, but we. A lot of Chinese came in then. Uh, they were mostly bachelors. We, we, there was a, a very discriminatory head tax on Chinese. Uh, the idea was, you know, you can come and you can work, but we don't want ethnic Chinese becoming Canadians. Um, but over time, some of the populations uh, did settle. There was an, a complete exclusion from about 1923 bill to exclude Chinese uh, coming to Canada. And then that was repealed after World War II because... Um, a lot of Chinese who were, who were ethnic Chinese Canadians had enlisted in the Canadian military, um, you know, in part to prove they were part of Canada. They shouldn't have had to, but they, they felt they did and they did. And so after 47, that was when you started to get kind of more normal Canadian immigration uh, coming out of China. And that increased over time. Uh, there is another very big bump uh, around Hong Kong. And uh, that population mostly sort of ended up in Vancouver and including from the mainland. We have, like many other countries, uh, uh, we had an immigration system where if you invested a certain amount of money, you could come into the country. And so at this very moment, there are around 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong, which, you know, and there was, you know, around what was happening around the National Security Alliance. I mean, there was questions about whether Canada would go and evacuate the Canadians from from Hong Kong or not. So that's so that's that's kind of a very short history of uh, Canadian of Chinese immigration into Canada. There's also been a lot of academic exchanges. We can get get to that later. Um, but what's kind of interesting in terms of the development of Canadian foreign policy in relationship to China is the Canadians who went to China, um, and we had a quite a, a large, by Canadian standards, cohort of missionaries. Uh, mostly Methodist and Presbyterian, who went to China uh, kind of around the end of the 19th century. And they they lived in China. And they had kids who were born in China. And so they spoke 
you know, very good uh, Mandarin or whatever the local language would be, depending on kind of where they were, Cantonese or wherever. And um, they were involved in hospitals and schools and uh, universities. And through those linkages, became involved in some of the political movements that were that were happening in China. Um, and these were relatively substantial numbers. Um, and some of them came back and uh, ended up in the Canadian Foreign Service because they were traveled and they had languages and they were educated and they were they were kind of a, a logical uh, route into the into the Foreign Service. Some of them stayed in China until quite late. One of the ones that um, we've talked about is James Endicott, who um, went back to China, and he he was there throughout throughout most of the wars. Um, he was first very close to Chiang Kai-shek and that kind of grouping, and then became disillusioned and became closer to Zhu Enlai and that grouping. And some of some of those people became very sympathetic to to communist China. Most of them had left uh, by '49. Uh, but they went into the Canadian civil service with this kind of very, very positive feeling. And there, there was one kind of key guy, um, a guy called Paul Lin, whose uh, father had, uh, Chinese father, had managed to bring over his family to Canada into Vancouver. And he was born in Vancouver, uh, I think around 1920 or sort of kind of relatively early in the century. And his father became the first ethnic Chinese Canadian Anglican, uh, ordained Anglican minister who was a missionary who, who then kind of continued his links with China. And so Paul Lin was kind of this kind of missionary kid who had was born in Canada, ethnic Chinese, um, continued to have those linkages. And he became a very important linchpin between Chinese Communist uh, Party uh, operatives and establishment and Canada. He came back to Canada and he ended up running the um, I think East Asia department at McGill University in 1965. And he was sending messages back and forth. In fact, the, the U.S. used him as well. And we'll get I'd like to get back to his story because he was kind of the guy that brought politics, business, and the missionary uh, groupings really together. But to give you a sense of where this was ending up, by uh, after he left McGill, he went to a university in Macau where he was conferring honorary doctorates on Kissinger and Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Oh. So we have these, you know, these linchpin people who were bringing together all of these elements, this kind of idealism, anti-Americanism. He gave a very uh, important speech in Banff in kind of the late 60s being very anti-American, very anti-Vietnam engagement uh, and justifying a Canadian independent foreign policy, which would mean recognizing China and moving away from Taiwan. Um, and the business community, he was instrumental in bringing a lot of the business dealings back and forth. And the relationship with the U.S., backdoor channel from the Americans through Canada into these Chinese linkages. So we have, we have these people, these from, from very early on, who, uh, for a range of their own reasons, um, were very sympathetic to the Chinese Communist Party and were working quite hard to advance their interests, uh, its interests by Canada. It's interesting you're talking about some of the history that actually echoes the history of the U.S. and China in some ways, uh, like with, uh, you know, the missionaries going to China, um, with the Chinese immigration to build railroads but not being allowed to come, uh, fully. And I'm wondering, since you mentioned this guy, Paul, and his like the U.S. using him as a backdoor, do you think that Canada kind of recognizing China in 1970, this kind of led or opened the door to the U.S. doing it later? That that was um, for people who are sympathetic to the Chinese Communist Party and that engagement. That was actually the hope. Um, and it was very overt. You know, I mean, when Mao was told about the recognition um uh, he apparently said, you know, great, now we have a friend in America's backyard. Um, and some of these guys, I mean, Endicott was feeding information to the OSS during the war. You know, there, you know there, there, these, these networks were, were, were there. But this is, this is kind of where we get into 
where U.S. and Canadian foreign policy really diverged. So Canada was Canada fought w- with the U.S. in the Korean War, and in fact, the Mish kids in foreign affairs. The Canada, Mish kids being the missionary the, kids. The, yeah, the kids of the missionaries. That's mm-hmm. right. Sorry, yeah, Mish kids. Everybody knows who the Mish kids are. Um, they were like the Cabbage Patch dolls, right? Everybody was collecting them in the uh, in the Communist Party. Um, uh, so we were with the Korean War, with the U.S. in the Korean War. But actually, on the day the North invaded the South in Korea, one of the Mish kids had gotten permission to start negotiations to recognize China. This is 1950. Oh, early on. Very early on. But because of the Korean War, um, that you know, and the the obvious pressure from the U.S., you know, saying, look, these these guys are still dripping with the blood of American soldiers. How that how are you going to negotiate with them? Um, It was put on the back burner. But then, you know, Canada diverged with the U.S. on the Vietnam War. And there was a a kind of very uh, there was a lefty uh, anti-Americanism that that became very pervasive within the systems. and was personified uh, in some respects by Pierre Elliott Trudeau when he became prime minister in in 1968. Um, So there was much more of a willingness to push back on on the U.S. then. But Canada is not monolithic and the U.S. isn't monolithic. And there were elements within both Canada and the U.S. that were uh, against the Chinese Communist Party and pro-Chinese Communist Party. So when interests aligned, the networks were sitting in Canada kind of ready to be picked up by people like Kissinger. You know, Kissinger knew Paul Lin, and those those linkages were, were there. You know, he was asked to pass messages, which I'm undoubtedly sure he did. It's amazing to think that some of the things that, uh, you know, Kissinger did uh, with U.S.-China policy ties into what was happening in Canada as well. Yeah, and it's worth, if you'll indulge me, in a little Canadian history viewers can go to sleep for a few minutes um don't go to sleep keep keep watching keep the views going like like and subscribe sorry sorry yeah hit that bell icon as they say on the indian shows um don't know what that means um a little bit of diversion into to u.s canada history so uh we last time i was on we joked about the war of 1812 right never forgave you for it (laughs) well so this is the question who who was the U.S. fighting in the or what was going on in the War of eighteen twelve? Nobody knows. From your perspective, who was on the other side? The bad guys. Uh, the British, right. from... inevitably. <laughs> who were they? Uh, the British. The enemies of America. I don't care. Past that. So Shelley's got it. I mean, we were. Th- th- what was to your north? until relatively recently, like like kind of after the, just after the Civil War, was Britain. It was the British Empire was to the north, right? So it wasn't just Canada. It was the troops were coming from Europe, and we had Canadian troops, and we had a lot of Native Canadians, First Nations, who, were, who fought in the War of 1812 on, the, on our side, on the Canadian side. But it wasn't Canada, you know, that we're kind of really used to thinking of Canada as just this sort of standalone entity. But for a very long time during the, the U.S.-Canada, what we now call Canada relationship, what was to your north was the, the British Empire. And there was a, a, a lot of, uh, there, there were a lot of issues on the border. You know, when, you, when, when, the, when the U.S. had its war of independence, it was going independent against what is now Canada. We didn't go independent. We were the British Empire. So we had the you know, groupings of Americans who didn't want to leave the British Empire called the Loyalists who came across the border into Canada and who were sitting in Canada. During, during the Civil War, the largest base for the Confederate Secret Service outside of the South was in Montreal. Hmm. They had the, the Confederate Army had millions in gold sitting in Canadian banks and controlled Canadian banks and tried to crash the greenback for Montreal. There were raids, the St. Albans raid that came down uh, from basically Montreal into Vermont to rob the banks in St. Albans to bring the money to, to fund the, the Confederate military. So there, there is Canada, Canada-U.S. relationship hasn't, hasn't been 
benign. And Canada hasn't been hasn't been Canada. When Jefferson Davies, when he lost the war, he came up to Montreal. Hmm. You know, there's a grouping of there's a Confederate enclave right near where the underground railway settlers settled. Like so we we've we've played a role in each other's history that that we often forget. And um it's it it's only relatively recently that Canada has had a control over its own foreign affairs. Um, and part of the way that it's defined its foreign affairs is not being American. And there was concern about being gobbled up by the U.S. until, I mean, there was a, there was a war plan, a serious war plan put together in, I think, 1920, 1921, called Defense Scheme Number 1, which was an invasion plan of the U.S. from Canada. What? what? Yeah, well, because because during the War of 1812, whenever whenever Canada or the British Empire looked weak, U.S. was looking to expand its manifest destiny and expand north. That's what the one of the triggers for the War of 1812 was. The British Empire was caught up with the Napoleonic Wars. And so some in the U.S. thought this is a good opportunity to grab some of some of Britain, some of the British territory. Right. Um, didn't work out so well. Similarly, so here's a question, you know, when, when, did the U when and why did the U.S. buy Alaska? We bought it from the Russians because we thought it'd be a good opportunity to surround Canada. Somebody has been paying attention. Yeah. Is that really why? Yeah. Yeah. So the Civil War ended in 65, 1865. The Alaska Purchase was 1867. Russia was concerned about Britain. They, it wanted to weaken the British Empire. It didn't want the British Empire right off its coast. And it thought that it could weaken the British Empire by selling Alaska to the Americans. And the Americans thought if you, if you hold Alaska and you hold the, the west coast of the US, you can do a pincher move on Canada. That's brilliant. And at that point, Canada didn't exist. We, we confederated, the provinces started to come together in 1867 at the same time. And British Columbia, which was a colony of the UK, only said they would join the rest of Canada if we built a railway so we could get British troops out to defend British Columbia. And this is where the Chinese immigrants come in. And this is where the Chinese immigrants came in. Real quick, though, you said as recently as 1920, there was the uh, invasion of U.S. plan. Wait, so was Canada trying to invade the U.S.? Yeah, that was what that was. Uh, so the the plan was you cross over uh, places like Seattle, Montreal, whatever. You do a uh, Detroit. You, you do a big push, get surprise attack. You burn all the critical infrastructure, like the bridges. You destroy the railways. You retreat and you wait for the British to bail you out. That was basically the plan. I see. Well, unfortunately, you've spoiled the plan. It's not a surprise anymore. And uh, we're going to be invading, let's just say. <laughs> but in 1930, the U.S. put together its, or its own war plan, which was like uh, War Plan Red, I think. Or, yeah, yeah, War Plan Red, to invade Canada, which wow. was the counter to Defense Scheme 1. Yeah. We forget how, you know, how North American politics, U.S.-Canada politics were caught up in global politics, in, in, in geostrategic battles, the Napoleonic Wars, or what Russia was concerned about with the British Empire. or soviet Union Russia, yeah. Yeah, or the Seven-Year War, which resulted in, you know, the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in Quebec, which, you know, made, which, which led into, you know, British troops and the American War of Independence in a very, very, very broad way that my history teacher would not be happy about me saying. <laughs> but there, you know, we're not, Canada has been sort of recently this docile, amusing neighbor to the north. But when, this, when all of these relationships with, with China were being developed with, between Canada and China, you know, there were still all of these, there are people who were living through some of those complexities. Hmm. You know, Canada was, conf Eastern Canada, part, only four provinces of Canada were confederated in 1867. You know, 20 years later, we're, you know, we're, start, we're sending missionaries to China. BC, I think, didn't even join, British Columbia didn't join until like maybe 15 years later. 
So it was maybe only, you know, a decade since BC became part of Canada, or what was Canada then, that, that we were sending. So, the, so the, Brit, the British component of it was still very strong. The, the Chinese link to, to this is, you know, that Canada was really just starting to develop an independent foreign policy. And a com- big component of that foreign policy for some was we are not the U.S., you know. We're, we're not a big imperial power. We're going to leave the world the morally, like you see Jacinda Ardern saying in New Zealand. You know, it's always questionable when you hear somebody saying that. Um, but you get a lot of sympathy for socialist and communist movements globally. Trudeau wasn't just a fan of Chinese Communist Party. He was a big fan of Cuba, very close linkages to Castro. Castro came to his funeral. You're talking about Justin Trudeau's father? That's right. And Justin Trudeau. Oh, wait, you mean Pierre Trudeau? Yeah, Pierre Trudeau, yeah, not yeah. Fidel Castro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they're. Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but Justin Trudeau, he would have gone to Castro's funeral, but there was a bunch of there was push political pushback on it. And he gave a very lovely eulogy. So that strain of all of that is is there. Um, and. And it combines with, you know, with Quebec, which is a whole other story, which has complicated relationships with with the U.S., but also with English Canada. So for China, Chinese Communist Party, which is very good at finding leverage points, entry points, Canada is like a gift. First nation. I mean, in 2008, China brought a couple of dozen leaders of uh, First Nations to China to try to set up business. And First Nations in Canada... They control a very large part of Canada's landmass. So we were ripe for the picking, if you can put it that way. Well, I assume that China invited them because China always respects its own ethnic minorities and treats them very well. So why wouldn't it also want to support the Canadian First Nation people? So the line was, um, and this is you, you hear it a lot, was... We also suffered colonial humiliation and oppression. That was the line. Uh, And so we want to help you prosper the way we prospered. Now, First Nations are a very sophisticated, smart bunch of people. They've had had the short end of the stick, uh, to put it mildly, for a very long time. They know when somebody's selling them a bill of goods. Um, But, you know, it's their job to see if they can get a better deal uh, by negotiating with whoever they can. And if by going to China, it gets them more attention in the Canadian government and they get a better deal out of Canadian companies, then that's what they'll do and, and who can blame them. Is there a lot of business between the First Nations and Chinese companies? There's some. I mean, there's a lot of land claims issues. And um, so a lot of the, the, you need environmental clearances. Um, you need, it's, it's, it's very complex. And it, it starts to get very murky because, and we've seen this in sort of the, in the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands. I know it's a big jump, but, uh, you know, they, uh, the U.S. military wanted to put in an amphibious training base and then suddenly local environmental groups were getting a bunch of money to protest against it. It may have looked, it looks like it was probably coming from China. Um, so in the environmental group may have been very sincere, but it's environmental concerns domestically, but they were serving a geopolitical purpose, which was to make sure that the U.S. didn't set up an amphibious training center relatively close to China. So that kind of dynamic, the dynamic that you would see anywhere else, you're going to see in Canada. I don't know what the details are on a lot of these things. Um, uh, the First Nations negotiators are very smart, and uh, you know they're, they're in the process now which is a big issue of figuring out uh, who's going to be providing telecom services to the north, to northern Canada. So we have Huawei 3G and 4G in our systems, but the, we've, we're delaying the decision on whether or not to put in 5G. But Huawei is coming into northern Canada, which is where the Inuit live, a lot of um, uh, native Canadians live, with very, very good deals. They're you know, 20, 30 percent cheaper than anybody, anything anybody else can provide. So, you know, if, Can- if Canada, it's like everywhere else that you've heard this story a million times, you know, unless Canada ponies up with a comparable deal, 
you know, they need communications. They need telemedicine, teleeducation. They need, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So there, it's coming in. China is coming in anywhere it can. You know, there's that, uh, that, gold, uh, that gold mine up in Nunavut, um, which China's trying to buy, which is near NORAD base and uh, has a deep port. Uh, Nunavut is is primarily run by the Inuit, um, so you know that's a decision that that is a complex one. It's gone to a national security review, um, but it's hard to know how it'll go. And this this is if if the if you have a question about kind of what's going on right now in Canada, Canada has a completely different system of government than the U.S. So we have a minority government, the, the Trudeau government, which is was reelected in 2019 is a minority government, which means that in order to pass legislation, it needs the support from at least one of the other parties in, in parliament or lack of objection. So it can't kind of run with what it wants to run with. And some, some people think that if they re win a majority, the reason they're kicking all of these decisions down the line, like 5G, is if they come back with a majority, then you know maybe they'll pass, they'll let Huawei come into the 5G network. So even after... China kidnapped two Canadian citizens, Michael Cover and Michael Spavor. There's still this plan of actually increasing relationships with China, at least in the Trudeau side of the government. Well, there, there, there are there are very deep economic linkages, and they're very important people who have deep connections to China. So we talked we talked about the missionary kids, and you know and kind of the idealism within some of the political leaders. Idealism is one way of putting it. But then there's also the, the business sector. And the business sector involvement with China goes back very early. Uh, we were, Canada was selling wheat and barley to China in the early 60s. You know, during the, the Great Leap Forward, it was Canadian wheat and and barley to a lesser degree that that we're keeping some people from not starving and also taking a lot of the pressure off of Mao just because because it was providing food. So at the same time that, you know, China was attacking India, Canada was arranging wheat shipments to China. Huh. And this was after Canada chose to recognize China instead of Taiwan? This is before. Oh, this still is before. Uh, so yeah, so Canada Canada recognized China in 1970. And this was in the early 60s. This was 60, the negotiations started around 60 and went to about 64. And we had a deal with China where we lent them over $400 million for five years so that they could use that money to buy our wheat and barley. Hmm. So we were very supportive, to put it mildly, you know, of, of some of the, and, and in a kind of a very sort of typical uh arrangement, you know, the Canadian diplomat that that arranged for that deal subsequently went on to be an economic advisor to the Chinese Communist of course. Party. But that's amazing though. Like history would have been very different if Canada weren't there supporting the Chinese Communist Party, both in the Great Leap Forward and uh, when China was in was having the war with India. Like that's an incredible piece of his world history that like I'm not used to thinking of like, oh, Canada was a critical player. I mean, if only we had taken over Canada in the 1930s. This would never have happened. Yeah. But I'm, I think it's nice, Cleo, that like our countries have, have always wanted to invade each other. I feel like that's that's very lovely. We, we've been we've been mostly defensive, to be fair. Um, you called your invasion plan the defense plan, number one, right? So... Yeah, defense scheme number one. Yeah. Well, we just wanted to burn a few bridges and blow up a few railways. And, you know, That's totally there. understandable. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, it is a counterfactual, you know, question. You know, what would have happened if, if we if the Chinese wouldn't have helped us build the railway and you would have taken B.C.? You know, you would have had the whole West Coast. And uh, completely, Canada wouldn't be a Pacific country. I mean, there's, there are, there were a lot of little moments in history like that where things could have could have gone very differently. Um, yeah, and and we have, you know, just to sort of move forward because you, but the, this business component about how Canada is, you know, yeah. For, first of all, to be said, unlike a place like Australia, 
our major trade partner by far is the U.S. You know, Canada is not in hock to China in the way others are in hock to China. The you know, we do a lot of trade with China, but they're number three after the U.S. and I think the European Union. So a lot of this is is not is kind of luxury money. I mean, it's like added bonus, added benefit. I mean, we do take a lot of imports, obviously, but they've done tons of intellectual property theft, um, you know, the fentanyl, the, like all of the damage that they do everywhere else they've, they've done to Canada. But a, a key component for keeping this relationship, the business relationship going, has been um, the Power Corporation, which is a major Quebec company. Um, it's been around a long time. And it's run by the, now they're kind of shifting some of the responsibility, but for three generations, it's been run by the Demeray family. And Paul Demeray, who, who was the one who really grew it into this multi-billion dollar business, uh, was, was an advisor to Pierre Trudeau. And they together, as China was opening up to, the, to Canada, you know, put together this method of, uh, cooperation. So they set up the uh, China-Canada Business Council and Canada-China Business Council. And of the 10 founding members, you had uh, obviously PowerCorp, but you also had Bombardier and SNC-Lavalin, which are two very big multinationals that are also based out of Montreal. There's a whole kind of Quebec or French-Canada component to this, which is also very interesting. Um, and CIDIC, which is a massive Chinese Communist Party-linked corporation. And not only was Canada trying to figure out through this board how to invest in Canada, it was allowing China to invest outside of China. So one of the first major CIDIC investments outside of China was, I think, a kind of a pulp mill, maybe a paper pulp mill, but it was facilitated through Power Corp. When was this? Like this is in the seventies. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, and that and that board is still. I mean, Paul Demeray's grandson is now a chair of the chair of that, and you know he's been talking about how we, sh you know, he's been trying to lower the tensions on the two Michaels, on the kidnapping and the two Michaels. Let's put it that way. But Paracorp has employed either on the board or as a lawyer or through some other way for Canadian prime ministers. I mean, it, it, wow. so Pierre, yeah, Pierre Trudeau, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, um, Brian Mulroney, those, those four prime ministers have, and, and now of course they, they, there's no linkage to Justin, but Justin is Pierre's son, current prime minister. You know, these are, these are, prime ministers that have been in control of, of Canada for like 30, 40 years. Hmm. Those linkages are, are, are really deep. And, um, and they link into Paul Lin. Paul Lin uh, facilitated that Canada-China Business Council set up and uh, the back and forth uh, exchanges and, and worked with Paul Demeray on this and, and advised the Canadian government on this. So, you know, the, it, it it's deep, it's old, it's tight. Um, there's a lot of money. There, there are a lot of personal relationships, generational personal relationships. So, you know, why not let the Chinese come and train in winter training with the Canadian military? What kind of company is PowerCore? Do they directly have interest in China right now? It does a lot, a lot of different things, including wealth management. Um, it has been involved in media. In um, it's it's very diversified and quite uh, complicated to to see where where everything is. Uh, but yes, their partnership. I mean, Civic is still on is is still part of that board, and and the other two, you know, Bombardier. Uh, which sells planes is is also on that board, and so is SNC Lavalin, which have just said that they're looking at at co-developing nuclear reactors or working with China on developing nuclear reactors. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So it's a whole grouping 
and it's based out of Montreal, you know, uh, to a large degree. And Montreal, Montreal is uh, the largest city in the province of Quebec. Um, Canada doesn't have states. We have provinces and territories. Um, approximately across the board in Canada, 20% of the population is French-speaking. So Paul Desmarais actually wasn't originally from Quebec. He was a Franco-Ontarian, but he, he moved to Quebec. There are French-speaking people all over Canada. But the majority of the French-speaking people are in Quebec, and Quebec about 80% of the population is French speaking, you know, and it's not, this isn't, this is French speaking. This is like, some of them have a, you know, don't speak English that well. I grew up in, in rural Quebec and you go, you know, I went to the local French school. I was the only English kid in the school, English speaking kid in the school. Like none, none of the kids in the class could speak English. It's, it's a completely in the same way that Canada isn't quite what the U.S. thinks it is, Quebec is com completely different. Um, worth visiting if we ever open up the borders again. Um, but the, the language is heavily protected, and it functions a, a little bit, not on purpose, as a, as a barrier to scrutiny. So if you want to know about power cord, you know, in Quebec, the law is if your company is larger than a certain size, all of your internal documents have to be in French. So if you want to know more about Paracorp, you need to you need to know French. So Quebec becomes a little bit of an information black hole, not deliberately, but that's that's what happened. So the fact that a lot of these companies that are dealing with China are primarily operating in French um, makes it a, a little bit more difficult for those outside to actually understand the, the depth of what's going on. And so that kind of leaves a lot of the rest of the country kind of um, just not understanding the reach of China? So the, so the rest of the country has its own issues with China. I mean, Vancouver is, you know, it's a situation like San Francisco. It's very familiar. We, we, you know, you've got problems with triads going back a long time. You have, you know, everything you would expect. Um, Toronto, which is the business center now, um, has tons of Chinese investments, everything that you'd expect. It's just this, this other little node, this Quebec node, which for Canadian political reasons also, we, we also tend to, because of the way seats in parliament are apportioned, uh, we, we tend to have a lot of political leaders from Quebec. So those four prime ministers that I mentioned, um, you know, Trudeau, Chrétien, Paul Martin, uh, Brian Mulroney, Brian Mulroney, Ir Irish name, Conservative Party, based out of Quebec. Um, they're, all four of them are based in Quebec or, ca or came from Quebec or have Quebec political backing. So uh, Power Corp has a lot of influence within the political system and particularly within the Liberal Party. And Ottawa, the capital of Canada, is about a two-hour drive from Montreal and a million-hour drive from everywhere else. Like, it's, it's, not a, it's not a convenient location. It was, it was founded as a compromise at the beginning between French and English Canada. It was sort of like a midpoint where nobody would get too mad if you put it there. It's not an organic city. It's a, it's a company town, and, and the business is politics. But the closest city to it is Montreal where you've got all of this other stuff going on. Well, so I would imagine, like, even though there is this long history of um, kind of being soft on the Chinese Communist Party, I would imagine a lot of people inside Canada are not happy with the situation after, well, there's a whole big scandal with Confucius Institutes, but more recently there was the kidnapping of the two Michaels, uh, the coronavirus. How is that a factor? Chinese government popularity in Canada is like in single digits. The Chinese Communist Party is not popular in Canada. And there were a lot of other stories that 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 don't get across the border. We we had a year ago, July, we had a Chinese researcher and her students escorted out of a level four bio lab in Winnipeg. You know, and a lot of Canadians were like, what 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 was that? <laughs> like I, I remember that. It it kind of played into a lot of uh, weird coronavirus conspiracies, actually. Yeah. I mean, and and cons conspiracy or not, she was clearly doing something not great. 
and another component of this was um, one of the things that got set up uh, very early on, on the 1973 Trudeau visit to China, was academic exchanges. So we were taking in groups of Chinese students very, very early on. There were, it was an exchange. So the Canadian students would like, you know, go to China and, you know, learn language and culture and whatever. The Chinese students would come to Canada and were largely focused on learning English and auditing the science and tech classes. Mm-hmm. And then as the English got better, the exchange became more about taking the science and tech classes. So, and, and it's clear if, you, if the Chinese Communist Party gives you that golden ticket to go study in Canada, you know, you owe them. So, you know, that has been happening for a long time. And some of, and some of the students now, you know, are just lucky, happy Chinese who have, you know, managed to get a chance to go study in Canada. And some are, as you see in the U.S., much more problematic around the, the stealing of IP and, and uh, R&D and all that sort of stuff. And that has affected our businesses. It, it you know, the, probably killed Nortel, which was like, a, again, a multi-billion dollar um, uh, research. They did a lot of cutting edge research around things like they could have been very useful for developing 5G if all of their tech hadn't been stolen in a hack that was tra- tra- tracked back to China. Canadians know that. They know that we have companies that have been severely affected by IP theft. We know there was a demonstration recently. There was a Chinese company that wanted to set up a glass factory in Stratford, Ontario, a very pretty town. And they were talking about bringing in Chinese workers to work in the glass factory. And as always happens, the city council was like, great, it's investment. And the local population was like, yeah, we don't see the benefit here. You know, we don't see the environmental impact assessment makes no sense and, and the jobs are going to go to foreign labor anyway. So there is a, a lot of awareness, but foreign policy is not high on the list of uh, Canadian political voting issues unless it's the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, or some or war or something like that. So if there hasn't been enough of a momentum, the Canadian population is not happy, but there hasn't been enough of a momentum yet to make it a political issue. So it's not like Australia. It's not. It's not. Um, It kind of should be, but it's not. And the the other thing about Canada is, I mean, we're not, our relationship to China isn't as indebted as, as as the Australian one is. But also Canada is very regional. So we are, the, it's the second largest landmass country in the world. It's, it's huge. It's like Russia, then us, then the U.S. And we have one-tenth the population of the U.S. And each province and territory is very different, very psychologically different, very economically different. Um, and they get, you get caught up in your own stuff. And China seems very, very far away. And one of the reasons for that is the U.S. has taken care of us. <laughs> like the U.S. is our main defense provider. You know, the U.S. has taken care of us in the Arctic. Uh, that's declined a bit. And maybe we should talk about the Arctic. But, you know, it, and it's our main trading partner. So we don't seem to have problems. We're a wealthy country. We don't have any enemies on the border. We don't have, you know, major illegal immigration problems until you guys all start trying to sneak across the border. You know, we, we're fine. So we don't have that heightened sense of strategic insecurity, which helps focus the mind on something like China. One thing that's interesting talking about China versus Australia is I think that Australia's like big awakening moment came partially because they found all of this, these Chinese uh, billionaires trying to buy off their politicians and things like that. But it sounds like from Canada, it's almost like China doesn't need to do that because the Canadian politicians and academia, and they've been kind of pro-CCP since the 60s or earlier. Yeah. So there have been some scandals related to that. And there has been coverage related to that. And there has been lawfare related to that coverage on the part of um, people who didn't like what that coverage said. And because I'm very poor and can't afford a lawyer, 
I would recommend people go and Google it on their own, uh, and you can find out about it that way. Or maybe duck, duck, go it. <laughs> yeah, sorry, duck, duck, go it. Definitely duck, duck, go it. Um, that doesn't roll off the tongue. I like buy, do it. No, man. no. If it was crispy duck, duck, go, then I think that more people would, would be tempted by it. Interesting. Um, this is also this is also kind of local a localized issue. So you know this this comes up quite a lot in British Columbia, for example, or in Ontario, uh, which are two locations that have very large recently arrived uh, Chinese population. Canada is highly federated, so the provincial governments have an enormous amount of discretion and power. So some of it happens that way. I. Yeah, I do remember a story about a mayor in Van- somewhere in British Columbia who went to like a flag raising ceremony for China and he didn't kind of realize that it was for uh, like the CCP's National Day. Like there was a big scandal because he went to some flag raising ceremony and didn't quite realize what he was doing, according to him. Completely, yeah, completely possible. <laughs> Um, I don't know that specific case, but yeah, it's completely possible. Um, but it's, it's tough to be a journalist in Canada because, you know, we don't have very big markets. So for example, in Quebec, if you're a journalist in Quebec, there are maybe two or three newspapers because if you're a journalist in Quebec, if you're, you're French, right? If you're French language journalist in Quebec, which is what most of the journalists are, and you want to do investigative research into why, for example, I don't know if you know this, but Boshi Lai's son was working for Power Corp until, I mean, December 29, still in December 2019, he was working what? for Power Corp. Real quick, I have to explain Boshi Lai very quickly to the audience. If you don't know, Boshi Lai was sort of Two big power factions in the Chinese Communist Party, this is going very quick, is Xi Jinping and former Chinese leader Jiang Zemin. The Jiang Zemin faction wanted Bo Xi Lai as the next guy in charge of China. Uh, it went to Xi Jinping instead, and there was this big whole crazy power battle and coup, and Bo Xi Lai was purged and in his jail. But his son is was working in Power Corp. This was like 20, 2012. Yeah. As recently as like a, a year ago. I don't know whether he still is. It's hard to get information out of Power Corp. Um, but that shows the, the level of trust the party has for power court, right? Like they're trusting. At least certain factions of the party. Well, but you see, I think, it, I think they know they have to do something with him, with, with the son. And, and if they, they trust power court to keep an eye on him. Huh. Right? So um, this is complete speculation. But that's the kind of based on how everybody behaves, that, that would be logical to me as to why he ended up there. Because it certainly hasn't affected Paracorp's co- you know, relationship with the party. These are old, deep, generational relationships. I mean, in Paracorp, it's hard to, 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 I mean, you know, the founder was Paul Demaray. He had a son, Andre, has a son, Andre Demaray. Andre Demaray is married to the daughter of former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Hmm. Like, the, the, the political linkages are super deep. Almost as if it was a deep... State, <laughs> frozen, frozen deep state. Uh, we, you know, um, it's not hidden. This is this is the thing. You can go to Wikipedia. You'll learn all of this. It's just nobody's really reported much of it. I mean, there again, there've been a lot of there's been a lot of great coverage on it. Uh, again, Charles Burton is great. McDonald Laurier, which is a kind of research institute, has done a lot of good stuff. Clive Hamilton has written about it in some of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Manthorpe has written about it. He's, he wrote a lot about that, the Mish kids era, which was kind of interesting. So it's, it's out there. It just, I don't I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, Canadians haven't prioritized it as an issue and the U S people in the U S you know, I'd say defense and Intel community, the relationship with our people is very good. You know, the Canadian military was livid about this stuff. I think that's probably why, certainly why they canceled the exercises and possibly why they leaked, why the documents were not leaked, were released so badly redacted. Like there are a lot of people in the system who aren't comfortable with this. But at the same time, Canada's current ambassador to China, uh, Dominic Barton, is former McKinsey. He, he headed McKinsey 
in Shanghai for five years. And he's he's married to the head of Asia Pacific for BlackRock. Oh, my Whoa. God. <laughs> oh, gosh. It all comes back. Yeah, to the... it's, it's all t- not even just within Canada. It's all tied internationally. BlackRock is a huge investment company that well, is McKinsey heavily investing in China. Too, yeah. Yeah. So she so she's sitting in the Canadian embassy in China. Gosh. You know, it's not hidden. It's it's all there. Oh, that, that's what's shocking about all this. But now you mentioned that uh, many Canadians are not that concerned because it seems far away. But you brought up the issue that uh, China considers itself a near Arctic state. Despite being nearly a thousand miles from the Arctic Circle. Nowhere near the Arctic state. Uh, And that involves Chinese, potentially Chinese military right in the coast of the the Arctic Circle next to Canada. So that how is how do people feel about that? So the the kind of. People who are aware of it are, you know, not delighted and perplexed. Basically, it's it's like pretty much everywhere in the world now after coronavirus, unless you're benefiting in some way from your relationship with China or you're so anti something else that you're willing to be idealistic about China, then you're you're not happy with the Chinese Communist Party. So it's not, you know, it, it, it's like everywhere else. But the, the Arctic thing brings in a whole other element, uh, which is, you know, we how Canada and the U.S. are going to work together in the Arctic, but also how China and Russia are working together in the Arctic. Mm. So the Arctic is the Arctic is not just a strategic zone. Um, China released an Arctic strategy in 2018 and uh, and they were very overt about what they what they wanted out of the Arctic. So one was uh, that there, there were three main points: uh, security. Uh, so so that's kind of all of the, the military stuff. Uh, Mao was talking about having a nuclear submarine in the Arctic. Like this has been this has been a long term goal. Um, the other was uh, resources, which is kind of obvious. Um, but the third was uh, strategic research and development. Because if you're going to have something like the, the Beidou G- system, the competitor to GPS, you need to have stations in the Arctic. You need, you need the Arctic in order to have a space program. You need, you, know, you need the Arctic as a strategic space for global domination or hegemony. Uh-huh. So they've overtly talked about that component of it, the science and technology, the, they don't say overtly militarized, but the militarized science and technology component of being able to in place in the Arctic, to be able to have locations in the Arctic. So that's why you've seen this unbelievable Chinese push out, you know, to, you know, Greenland and the Faroe Islands and, you know, all of these little spots, and, and including the Canadian Arctic. I mean, they would love to get Huawei or, you know, some of their technology into the north because it it would allow perhaps the emplacement of some of these other technologies that would be helpful for for their own systems, which support their their military expanse, you know, expansion in the region. The the U.S. is very aware of it, and and this this past summer in, in July 2020, um, because of course this is going to be immortal, and people are going to be watching it in 20 years. So I have to be specific. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, released its own uh, Arctic strategy. And the, the Air Force is the lead of the branches of the military, takes the lead in the Arctic. They've got the most uh, resources up there, facilities up there. And, you know, and they're talking about their, their points are, I think, um, uh, vigilance, projection of power, uh, working with partners, um, uh, and preparing for Arctic operations. So, th- you know, there, there is an awareness. And everybody's moving. You know, there was that kind of discussion from, you know, President Trump talking about buying Greenland. Well, didn't buy, they didn't buy Greenland, but they have set up a consulate and put in a bunch more money. And they, and they resolved issues they have with the base. There's a big U.S. base there, Thule, which had some issues that's been resolved. At the same time, Russia is moving into the region. They've set up a consulate in Greenland. And for Russia, the Arctic is oh, like a quarter of their GDP, and it's a huge part of their psychology. So for, for China to come into the Arctic, it's largely currently coming in through Russia. They've had joint military exercises in the Arctic that are on exponential scales compared to what 
they were trying to do with the Canadian military in the north. Like the the, the China Russia uh, cold weather training is is way beyond, very effective, way beyond. So that dynamic, that Russia China dynamic, which for me is is one of the big questions of this next decade. You know, is that is that just going to become more and more embedded? Um, revolves a lot currently the closest cooperation that we've seen has been around the arctic what do you think what do you think about the china russia relationship that's that's kind of a big question because in some ways they hate each other but in other ways they are the axis that counters the u.s yeah the the whole friendship medal thing right yeah (laughs) with xi jinping and putin yeah i think as long as there's the u.s to kind of fight against is that they'll team up whenever possible, like with the UN uh, and all of these different things. But I think ultimately, I would be worried if I were Russia about letting China into the Arctic. That could definitely come back to bite them. Yeah, I mean, like the Chinese Communist Party is at best a fair weather friend, but maybe not even quite that, because I feel like they're always trying to undermine not just their enemies, but also their partners. And like, look at the split that the Soviets and the Chinese Communist Party had in the 20th century. It's like communist, different communist factions, they never get along. They always fight each other. They always want to kill each other. China still has that same communist party and, and Russia, I mean, of course, is not the Soviet Union anymore, but it still has a lot of those elements and people in power. And like, there's going to be factional infighting. Uh, or there's going to be, sorry, in, uh, inter-country infighting uh, in that system, except that the enemy of my, wait, how does it work? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So that's why you see Putin and Xi Jinping, you know, making dumplings together to kind of show their unity. But I, I don't think it's going to be super strong if they're successful in countering the U.S., I mean, do you see things changing at any time soon in Canada related to China relations? So the things that would help are, um, you know, increase. You know, if the if the U.S. were to stay on a similar track of concern about China, it makes it more difficult for Canada to completely go its own way. But even more so, uh, if our Five Eyes partners you know, start to uh, exhibit more concern in the in the documents. You know, there was a question about whether Australia was upset with us about cooperating. Um, we also, there was also a lot of, you know, in the documents, there was discussion about Canada was doing a freedom of navigation operation. France had just done one and China had complained and Canada was trying to find out from the French how far off the coast they were. So I think they were probably trying to get a little bit further away than the French were to sort of mitigate that. But there is a very, we're very tend to be, I think, sensitive to what lar- or larger uh, trends are uh, internationally. So if, if the Australians continue to stand up, that's very helpful. If other countries stand up, that's helpful. If, you know, all that sort of stuff. If there's more coverage in the Canadian press, that's helpful. If there's more coverage in the American media about Canada and the situation, as is starting to happen now around those documents that released that's helpful but it's you know it's even affecting our relationships with you know india for example so if we if we start to get uh, you know enough peer pressure um and enough awareness within canada then uh, then all of that is helpful we're entering an era now where you know we have to switch from hedging to alliances and partnerships if we're going to handle China. If countries decrease their hedging, Canada's been like hedge master general, and shift more towards true partnerships and alliances, I think Canada will will start to deviate in that direction. Because we, we do make money off of China, but we're not Australia. And if Australia can stand up to them, then then we can too. Well, I think that's a, a wonderfully optimistic note to end on. Uh, Cleo, thanks again for joining us. That that was a, a nice little tour of world history. I thought of things I hadn't thought of before. I definitely learned way more about Canadian history than I ever learned in school. Definitely. 
We'll we'll call this an AP uh, Canadian history lesson. <laughs> well, thank you. I can I'll I'll call up my uh, my professor, my history professor, and uh, and tell them that they should watch and be completely ashamed of me because I got it all wrong. <laughs> Check it all. Check everything I've said. I've got cheat notes, but you know it didn't help me in my exams in university, so I don't think it'll help me here. You use cheat notes in school? No, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well played. All right, Cleo, it's always a blast to have you on. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again sometime soon. Thank you. I, I hope I hope not because our country does something stupid again. I, I'm, appall- <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgive you as an individual for your role in this. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Well, I know much more about Canada than I ever thought I'd know. Sorry about that. I think I'm turning Canadian. I really think so. Do, 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 do. And Shelly is silent. That's always a good sign, Chris. Yeah. I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, nothing to say about it. <sighs> Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly Jong. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. See us again next time, eh?